May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. I think all of our readings have a common theme, and that is the power of God over death. Ben, do we have to talk about So here we are. Where else are you going to hear it but in the church? But in the Acts of the Apostles, we see uh, through the power of God that uh, Peter raises Dorcas from the dead. And then Psalm 23, of course, that beautiful psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And then Revelation we see this picture of the martyrs gathered around the throne of God, serving Him day and night. The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and guide them to springs of living water. And so that's, that's I think, the theme of these readings. The power of God through Jesus Christ over death to give people eternal life. And that's really at the heart of our Gospel reading. If you look at our Gospel reading, John uh, chapter 10, verse 28. I'll start verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. I just want to meditate on these promises that Jesus gives us about eternal life. This gives us a hope that the world cannot give in the face of death and mortality. A while back, I think it was last year, the New York Times interviewed Larry King. And um, he's in his 80s. I think the, the article said he was 82 at the time. And it's clear in this interview that he is confronted with his own, he's wrestling with his own mortality. And he says he takes uh, four hormone pills a day. And he's also signed up to have his body frozen after he dies. It's called cryonics. Heard of this? And uh, the, the hope is that someday scientists will discover what killed him and they can warm him back up and, and cure him. Now, Larry King said, I know that's kind of nuts. But he said, at least I can die with a shred of hope. A shred of hope. <laughs> See, that's, that's how the world kind of handles death and their own mortality. Well, in the Gospels, we have more than a shred of hope. We have a solid basis in Jesus Christ for hope. And this is a deep longing in the human heart. And Jesus comes right out and says, I am the answer to that longing that we all have for eternal life. John 10 is part of the famous... Uh, Discourse, I am the good shepherd. And part of the goodness of the good shepherd is that he gives his sheep, his followers, those who depend upon him, uh, this eternal life. And they will never perish. Let's take a closer look at what the good shepherd offers us. What does he mean by eternal life? In the New Testament, eternal life is, is ultimately... The life of God. The Greek word is zoe. The life of God. Of course, God's life is eternal. 
by definition, God is eternal. He has always existed. He's existing now. He will always exist. But it's not just about duration. Eternal life is not about simply extending life. It is about a quality of life. God's life is perfect. So the life of God is perfect love, perfect beauty, perfect goodness, perfect harmony. And so that is eternal life. It's to be in communion with with God. Uh, In fact, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says in John 17, 3, listen to these words of Christ. And this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So to be in fellowship with God brings us into communion with his life, which is eternal. And again, it's not just an extension of time we're talking about. We're talking about a quality of life. A Christian college once sent out some of its students to do some witnessing in the neighborhood. They sent these students out two by two. And two guys knock on the door of a a mother who is frenzied and harried. She's got a baby on her hip, feeding the baby. She's got a toddler at the side pulling on her shirt crying. She's got the living room is a mess. You know, there's a boiling pot on the stove and the students say to her, ma'am, are you interested in eternal life? (laughs) And she said, frankly, I don't think I could stand it. (laughs) Well, that's because, you know, she misunderstood. Eternal life is not just about more of the same. It's a different quality of life. I mean, we get glimpses of it here in the in the beauty of creation, in the goodness of creation, in the experience of God's presence and love and mercy through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says that the work of the Holy Spirit, he says this is in Ephesians one, the work of the spirit in our life, again, knowing the love of God, experiencing the presence of God, knowing that we have the hope of glory. Paul says that's like a a deposit guaranteeing an inheritance that is to come. It's a down payment. You get a down payment with a note attached saying there's more on the way. And that gives you hope for this life. And, And Paul says that's what the work of the Spirit does in us. And any Christian who is any person who is in communion with Christ by faith, any Christian, any believer has had those moments and experiences of the Spirit's work in your heart. That is a deposit of an inheritance that is to come. That is eternal life. So it's not just about duration. It is about quality as well. We get a little taste of it. We get an appetizer of it here. We experience it and we'll experience it more fully in the age to come. The age of the resurrection. Now, in contrast to this word eternal, Jesus uses the word perishing. I give them eternal life and they, my sheep, will never perish. And of course, that's an image of death. You can think of, you know, you pull a flower or pull a, a, a plant out of the ground, pull it and uproot it and leave it alone. It's going to wither and die. It's going to perish because it's been taken away from the source of life. It's been taken away from soil and water and light. 
Well, that's what it's going it, to. That's what it's like to be cut off from the very life of God, who is the source of all life and love. And to be cut off from God's life is to perish. And there's physical perishing, which we experience in this body. But Jesus is talking about spiritually perishing, being cut off from the life of God forever, a withering existence, an existence of corruption and decay. It's not what God intended for us, but if we cut ourselves off from the life of God, this is the result. But Jesus says, my sheep will not perish. My sheep will not experience that kind of corruption and decay. I give them eternal life and it's kept secure for them. And that's why it's possible for Christians who are perishing physically, their body is wearing down, to have hope and joy in their life. Even as they face this prospect of their body. Not prospect, it's a reality, isn't it? Of the body breaking down. It's because they know the Good Shepherd. Because they have experienced something of the hope of glory in their life. There was a, a British atheist um, named A.N. Wilson. He actually he, he wrote a book saying that Jesus was a failed prophet. I mean, he was out there in public trying to tear down basic Christian beliefs. But he had a change of mind and he had a change of heart. In 2009, he wrote a letter to the paper in London and where he professed his faith in Christ. This was the faith that he had been raised in, but he had left it behind. And he said one of the reasons he came back to faith in Jesus Christ is that he began to notice in, in the people he knew who were Christians. And he said, I'm not talking about famous people, theologians, philosophers. I'm talking about friends and family. He said, I began to see in their life how they live with hope and they face death with hope. He said, I'm quoting here, the greatest impact came from people, friends and family who have lived and faced death in the light of the resurrection story and in the quiet acceptance that they have a future after this life. So that is a witness to the world, uh, the world that thinks this is all there is and the, and the best you can do is just keep this life going as long as you can. What a witness to the world to live with that kind of hope and trust in the words of the Good Shepherd who says, my sheep Know me. They know my voice and I give them eternal life and they never perish. Now, of course, these are these are incredible, staggering promises that Jesus is making. Actually, the whole of John 10, you can just read it from beginning to end. And Jesus is making astounding claims. Why trust him? Why take him seriously? What is the basis of it all? Why do we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Well, because of who he is. It all hinges on his identity. And that's what's that is the issue that, it, that everything is revolving around in John chapter 10. Who is Jesus? Who is he? So it begins with verse 22, our passage. At the time of the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, I think that's kind of a, a, a clue here. Because the Feast of Dedication, which we call Hanukkah today, is the Festival of Lights. And it, looked back on, it looks back on the time that 
Judah Maccabee, who was a, a Jewish leader, he led a revolt against the pagans who had taken over the temple. And he rededicated the temple to the worship of God. Antiochus Epiphanes had put a statue of Zeus. This pagan leader, Antiochus, had put a, a statue of the pagan god Zeus in the temple of Jerusalem, desecrating the temple. Judah Maccabee led a revolt and rededicated, that's why it's the Feast of Dedication, rededicated the temple to the worship of God. He was and is a great Jewish hero, celebrated on Hanukkah. And so the Jews at this time are looking for another hero. They're looking for the Messiah to once and for all defeat the pagan rulers. And so here is Jesus. And, and they say the Jews who this refers to the Jewish religious leaders gather around him and they say, OK, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? Tell us, come out with it. Say it plainly that you are the Messiah, the Christ. So it's a question of Jesus's messiahship. And Jesus answered him, I told you and you do not believe. I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness to me. A staggering claim here that Jesus is, is, is saying, you're, you're right, I, I am the messiah. I told you that in my teaching. It's implicit in what Jesus taught about himself. That he is God's anointed one. So again, that's a shocking claim for this carpenter of Galilee to make. In fact, even Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd, is a staggering claim. Because the Old Testament background to this is Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, God says, I've had it with the people who are supposed to lead my sheep. I've had it with the shepherds of my flock. They are in it for themselves. And so there's coming a day when I myself am going to be the shepherd over the people. I'm going to do the job myself. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem and says, that day is here. The good shepherd has arrived in me. God is leading his people. And it's not just for the Jews. He says earlier, I have sheep who are. Beyond this flock. But he is going to be, he claims, the leader that God has sent to gather his people. A radical claim. And then it gets even more radical. Verse 30. I and the Father are one. I mean, there Jesus is claiming deity. Jesus is claiming that he is one with the divine nature. And at that point, they can't stand it anymore. They can't take it, the religious leaders. They pick up stones because they say, you're blasphemy. Leon Morris, in his commentary, says this on John. He says, they asked Jesus for a plain statement of messiahship and they got more than they bargained for. Not only am I the messiah, but I am one with God. There's a claim to deity there. Well, how does Jesus back up these claims? What does he point to? He says, look at my works. Verse 25, the works that I do in my father's name bear witness to me. Verses 37 and 38, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. 
look at what is going on in my ministry, Jesus is saying. Look at the miracles. John calls them signs pointing to who Jesus is. Just before this chapter, Jesus has healed the man who was born blind. And a division begins. And, and, and some Jewish people are saying, this means that at the very least he's a prophet. And the religious leaders are saying, no, no, he can't be a prophet because he doesn't fit into our box. He's doing these sorts of things on the Sabbath day. This is not how God is going to operate. This is not how the Messiah is going to operate. So there was a division among the Jewish people. And they bring this poor guy in who's just been healed from blindness. From birth, he's been blind. The whole village knows this guy. And they say, what do you think? I'm not a rabbi. I've never been to rabbinical school. I'm not a theologian. But all I know is I was blind. And now I see. This guy did something extraordinary. And only God can do what he's done. If this man isn't sent from God, then I don't know where he's from because only God can do these sorts of things. Well, they didn't like that. They threw him out. Jesus went after him after he was thrown out of the synagogue. He said, do you believe I've got a plan and a purpose for your life? Come and follow me. So that was a great miracle that, that Jesus had performed. And then after this chapter 10, I mean, this chapter 10 is sandwiched between two great mighty works. Of course, the greatest miracle in John is the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And that proves exactly what he's saying here in John chapter 10. That he does have the power over death. It foreshadows the bodily resurrection of all believers in Christ. So, Jesus says, the reason you can trust me, take a look at my works. Take a look at how God has been at work in my life. See, we have reasons as Christians to believe in the words of Jesus. And this is one of those reasons. You can go online. I did this this week as part of my research. I went online and just kind of Googled... Um, I don't remember what the search was. It was something like people who claim to be the Son of God. You go to Wikipedia and they have a list there of people who have claimed to be the Son of God. Um, I think I counted 39 people. And, the, and, the, and it says notable people who have claimed to be the Son of God. So there's many that are not notable, I suppose. But these folks on this list, we don't even know their names. Most of them, we don't know their names. They're long forgotten. Some of them are infamous people, you know, like David Koresh. He had some theology about being the Messiah, the Son of God, reincarnated. So they're either long forgotten or they're infamous people. There's only one person in human history who can point to his life and works and say, this proves it. I and the Father are one. And because he's one with the Father, we can trust him to give us God's eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believes in him will not perish, will not perish, but have eternal life. So this is our hope as believers in Christ. Question is for us, are we continuing to listen to this good shepherd? To trust his words and to follow him. Are we continuing to build our lives on him? You know, these religious leaders, they had preconceived ideas about what God was supposed to be like, what the Messiah was supposed to be like. And Jesus didn't fit into those preconceived ideas. And so they rejected him. 
And Jesus says that's proof that they were not part of the flock because you, you saw, but you still do not believe because you're not my sheep. They stubbornly refuse to listen to the good shepherd. So here we come, we kind of bump up against the doctrine of election, don't we? You don't believe because you're not one of my sheep. But notice that the doctrine of election doesn't nullify responsibility to believe what he's told you and what he's shown you. Because Jesus calls them to belief in this chapter. I mean, the doctrine of election has to sit with next to this idea that we see in John of a universal call to believe. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So we have a responsibility as Christians to share this gospel with everyone. We can't. We can't say to somebody, I don't think you're one of the flock, so I'm not going to talk to you about Jesus. Or, you know, I have this friend or family member and I've tried and prayed and I'm just going to give up on them. They must not be one of the flock. No. We continue to share the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's a call for everyone, whosoever believes. How you put that together with election and the universal call, I don't know. <laughs> Other theologians have tried to figure it out, but there it is. It sits along side by side. We're uncomfortable with it, but there it is. But the point is, is that there is this call by the Good Shepherd. And what he offers is a tug on the human heart. Every human heart longs for this eternal life. And we have a responsibility to follow his call and to witness to the Good Shepherd in our life. You know, we get so sidetracked, we lose focus on what matters most in this world because the world tells us what matters most is is this life. Of course, this life is a great good, but it's not the greatest good. And so we've got to refocus sometimes on eternal things. Somebody suggested one way we can do this is that we spend as much time tending to eternal things, tending to our soul, as we do tending to our bodies. However much time you spend on exercise or getting yourself ready for the day or dieting, Spend at least that much time and energy on getting to know the Good Shepherd. Reading His Word. Reflecting on your life in light of eternal values. These are the things that ultimately matter. Because this is the Good Shepherd who has eternal life. So, yesterday I was driving my son to a ball game, Noah. And uh, we're just talking about things that 12-year-old boys talk about. Baseball. Fantasy baseball. Cardinals baseball. <laughs> Sorry, not Royals, Cardinals. <laughs> Video games, that kind of stuff. And then in the middle of this, he just pipes up and he says, Dad, you know, atheism just doesn't make sense to me. It's just so empty. He says, uh, you know, there's no hope in atheism and it makes everything meaningless. So, you know, he was a 12 year old and now he's turned into a philosopher. That's the joy of adolescence, I guess. But he's right. I mean, God has placed a longing for eternity in the hearts of everyone. From a 12-year-old boy to an 82-year-old aging celebrity. And Jesus steps into this longing, this, this world, and says, I'm the answer to the longing. And here's why. Here's why you can trust me. He's the good shepherd. Let's continue to follow him. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do thank you for...
promise that we have in Jesus Christ. I thank you that most of us in this room, if, if not all, have heard the voice of the Good Shepherd calling to us. And we've tasted eternal life. And we thank you for the hope of glory that's planted there in our hearts. And we pray that you would help us to continue to follow you and to believe and to become more focused on eternal things. I pray for someone, maybe there's just one or two people who are, are not sure. They've, they've heard the, the voice of the Good Shepherd calling them, but they've not taken the step of faith and trust. I pray that they would do that today. I pray that they would hear Christ calling to them. I have your life. I can give you eternal life and make it secure for you for now and always. I pray that they would respond to the voice of the Good Shepherd. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.